It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Big welcome to John Roberts from the North Lawn of the White House. John, how you doing? Bill, it's uh, getting cold here in Washington, <laughs> D.C., so as, as happens every late fall as we come out to the North Lawn every day, you got to layer up with something else. I've, yeah, I've got I, a coat on for, I, I think, the first you. time this year. Well, thanks for being here. By the way, John Roberts doesn't sleep. He doesn't see his wife and kids. He's always on the job. Am I wrong? <laughs> uh, I'm always on the job, but I do see my wife and kids. But the phone is uh, the phone is never far away. Uh, yeah, the text messages are going off all the time, and I'm checking email more than I would like to. You but, know, some sometimes you know, I marvel, John, how you're able to keep everything straight. You know, <laughs> how do you uh, do that? Well, I don't, <laughs> and, and that's the dirty little secret. Is uh, sometimes I don't keep things straight. Uh, hopefully, I get them straight by the time I'm on the air. But I mean, just the other day, I, I sent something out that that, <laughs> that I wish I hadn't, and kind of had to walk it back a little bit. But as long as it doesn't get on the air or in publication, it's okay. Wow, you're such a professional. Really great, great to have you today. A uh, couple things I want to run through. We're a couple hearings in now. Uh, this may last another two months, I think. I don't think you would disagree with that. Uh, w- what has the White House said after the first few hearings this week? Well, you know, the, the White House position is that there's really nothing new under the sun when it comes to what we're hearing now in these public hearings. I think, you know, their their point is it's it's the difference between reading a movie script and actually seeing the movie. Uh, the content is no different. It's just the presentation that's different. But but I think there is real concern here in the White House that while there may not be anything that rises to the level of something that could get an affirmative vote on articles of impeachment in the House politically, uh, they've got a real problem here, which is why now they've set up a rapid response organization here at the White House. They brought in Tony Sag, who was uh, Stephen Mnuchin's spokesman from Treasury, back into the White House. They've got Pam Bondi, who is a, a real Trump stalwart, who's the former uh, attorney general of Florida, now working the halls of Congress on behalf of the White House. I think they know that they have to mount a vigorous uh, political and public relations campaign to show the alternative side of what the Democrats are trying to show in Congress. Well, that suggests that they're worried about a drip, drip, drip. Um, Perhaps they could be worried about how the electorate perceives uh, the proceedings. Um, That's interesting. I think it could be a case of, you know, death by a thousand cuts could potentially be the worst case scenario here. You and I both watched those hearings. Other than the the new uh, the new information about that phone call on July the 26th between Gordon Sondland and the president uh, that was overheard by an aide to Ambassador Taylor, there really wasn't anything new. But the fact that you put it all together in one place and you actually see a human being saying those things does have an impact in in the public forum. And I think that the White House realizes that that they need to fight back as hard as possible against all of that. There may not be any one thing that is a fatal blow, but if you get cut enough, you will eventually bleed to death. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that they're worried about. Um, I thought my sense this past week, if I went back to Wednesday, is that I, I understood the story within the first hour. 
And then my feeling was that they continued to hammer away at it until 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know if it continues like that, John, or if there's new information. Now, there's a suggestion that we're going to hear more about people who are on a, on a phone call in Ukraine who heard the president talk. Because to date, the criticism has been second, third, fourth-hand information. If they find people who were witnesses to a direct conversation, maybe that changes things. And I imagine well, that's, that's some it, concern there. I, I think it all depends on what the content is. Uh, because what we have now, via this new information from Ambassador Taylor, is that someone overheard the president saying to Gordon Sondland, how are we progressing on the investigations? But remember that the president just the day before had spoken to the president of Ukraine about investigations. And we have a transcript of the telephone call between those two leaders where they talk about the investigations. So for the president to ask Sondland, where are we with the investigations? And Sondland says Ukraine is ready to proceed. That really just reinforces information that we already know. Now, had Taylor testified well, my aide overheard the president say, how are we, where are we on investigations? Because I'm telling you, the Ukrainians aren't getting a dime from the United States until those start. Well, that would be something completely different. But that's not what was overheard by the aide. What was overheard by the aide was a, an, a repetition of what the president had spoken to Zelensky about. So I'm really not sure how much further down the field this idea of this being a new revelation actually moves the ball because uh -huh. the content is the same. Yeah, I was told before the hearings began that Republicans felt good in the following respect. They thought the two best witnesses were Bill Taylor, who was there on Wednesday, and Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who will appear midweek next week. I think he's on Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. And they seem to express, going back to Wednesday... Uh, after the close of the hearings, that they, they thought they were on pretty good ground. Uh, I, I remember the Jim Jordan's moment where he said, you're, you're their eyewitness. You're the best they've got. Um, I don't know if it stays that way, John, but that was the feeling at midweek. Yeah, you know, I, I think the fact that you have somebody who is a career diplomat, and I think Taylor really uh, not only played that part well, but I think that part is genuine for him. He, he didn't take offense at any of the questions. He seemed to be completely nonpartisan. And uh, it seemed so earnest in answering all, all of the questions that were asked, asked of him. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he clearly put some, I don't want to say meat on the bone, but I think he, he, you know, he clearly put a face to the testimony that we had read before. But... I, you know, when Jim Jordan says you're their star witness and, and all, all of this is hearsay, I think that Jim Jordan's got a real point there and that they, they don't have anybody who really looks like a smoking gun. So, so, again, I think we're down to this idea of there isn't any one thing that could torpedo this presidency. It may be a cumulative effect of, of death of a thousand cuts yeah. that does it. But I don't know how many people you could get to buy into that argument when it comes to actually mm -hmm. putting down a vote. Uh, one more question on this. Then I want to I want to kind of uh, I want to give our listeners an idea about what your day is like. So, so one more question on this. Do, do you get the sense that we're at the beginning of a of a book that's going to unfold with 500 pages or do you think this is a much smaller story that can be told in a chapter? 
And, um, and if that's the case, let, let's say there's 20 pages in that chapter. Are we on page one, or one, are we on page 18, or have we just read the first sentence of that story? I think it's difficult to tell at this point, Bill. You know, if, if indeed Kent and Taylor were the marquee witnesses, then I think we're looking at a fairly short book. But if they are just the beginning, and then the layers of the onion get peeled back, and there is more and more and more, and this process goes on not for a month or two months, but three, maybe even four months, then we could be looking at a much longer story here. Um, I was called by somebody at the White House just to talk about this. And they said, well, where do you think this is going? And I said, well, I could see that the Democrats could make a case to bring articles of impeachment to the full House. The full House votes on a strictly party line basis and maybe even with a couple of Democratic defections on presenting those articles of impeachment to the Senate for trial. Then when they get to the Senate, there's a motion introduced to dismiss. That's voted on and the whole thing ends right there. Uh, But the sentiment from the White House was that, well, maybe there's not even the support to bring articles of impeachment forward, and maybe the goal here is simply to make the president look as bad as possible getting into the, the high season of an election. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly where it goes. I think it's too early Meaning to Meaning you could lay the stamp of corruption on his forehead during a campaign of 2020. Exactly, which, um, exactly. And you, and, and you could, you, you know, even if he, he didn't get impeached, uh, if, you, if you say we've got all of this evidence of corruption... But then again, how do you make that stick? Because Adam Schiff was saying that there was absolutely, I mean, he swore up and down for months that there was absolutely evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And then Mueller didn't find any. So, you know, you can say one thing, but I think this day and age, I mean, you don't have to prove it for people to believe it. But I think when it comes down to getting into the voting booth and who you pull the lever for, uh, you've got to be pretty firm mm-hmm. in your convictions that you, you believe know, that the president is corrupt before you vote John, against him. John, you, you're bringing up a lot of great points. It, it reminds me of a rally that was in New York City two months ago. Elizabeth Warren was there, and she had a great crowd, Madison Square, or sorry, um, Washington Square Park in Greenwich yep. Village. It's sort of a rite of passage for a lot of Democratic candidates. Bernie Sanders was there a year ago, big crowd. Barack Obama had a couple big rallies there. She was there. I went. It was a tight 30-minute program. But what stuck out in me is how much she hammered home the idea of corruption. And so th- that's built into her campaign I imagine it's the same for Bernie Sanders and the same for Joe Biden and the same for Pete Buttigieg. And that's the banner they want to hang around President Trump's neck going into an election year. Do, do I, you, and I, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, how, how can you beat President Trump? You can't beat him on the economy because the economy is booming. The markets continue to set records every day. You can't beat him on employment because unemployment levels are at generational lows. Uh, wages are on the rise. The economy is doing very well, despite the fact that people think that the president is is a complete boob on foreign policy. America's foreign policy is pretty strong. ISIS was defeated. Uh, he's, he's managed to work out a ceasefire between uh, Turkey and Syria. You can criticize how he got there, but it does seem to be holding. So I think that the Democrats feel that the only way that they can beat the president next year is to either impeach him or, or, or brand the scarlet letter of C for corruption on his forehead. Yeah. And they will do everything they can to make sure that that happens. Uh, I said last question on this. I can't help myself. I'm sorry. Keep going. Uh, it's mid-November. Do you believe Congress still has this before them toward the end of January? 
I think there's a few senators who are running for president who hope that that <laughs> is not the case. I heard you talking about it, that if, if, if Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, and Bernie Sanders. Sanders have to be in Washington for a Senate trial on impeachment instead of being out there in Iowa for the caucus, that's going to be a real problem for their campaigns. Yeah. And, and if Elizabeth Warren continues to be one of the front runners up until then, uh, I don't think she's going to be too happy mm-hmm. about that either. Because you, you, we know that Iowa is not determinative uh, in terms of a presidential candidacy, but it certainly does give you a lot of momentum going into the first primary in New Hampshire and then into South Carolina after that. So if you can't go out and campaign in Iowa for the two or three weeks prior to the caucuses there, and you're a presidential candidate, that's a real problem for you. So I think you'll get a lot of pushback from, uh, you know, a few specific Senate uh, Democrats as to whether or not this should continue all the way through until the end of uh, January. I dig it. I mentioned you were on the North Lawn. I've got a few more minutes with you, right, John? Do I? Absolutely. I've got nothing else to do. And if I do, I'll do it right here. (laughs) I appreciate that. Well, what do you see around you right now? That, That... uh, it's not a tent, but it's pretty close to it there where you guys hunker down there and do your reporting. Uh, yeah, there is a series. It, it used to be um, nothing but dirt. And uh, then they put gravel down because it became a mud pit, which is how it got its nickname of Pebble Beach. It was actually Gravel Beach. Uh, and then uh, 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 in, in the uh, waning years of the Bush administration, 2006, 2007, they ripped it all apart. They took up the gravel. They actually laid down some landscape stone, and they put up these uh, green tents uh, that sort of have an arch canopy on it. And there's probably 10 or 12 of them along the, uh, the driveway in front of the West Wing. Uh, and uh, that's, uh, that's where we camp out. Not all day. I mean, we have a place inside the White House. We're actually in the basement of the White House, five of us cramped into a little uh, seven-by-eight space. It gets pretty tight. You've got to be uh, yes, pretty friendly it, with your colleagues. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, you so we, we, we spend most of our day down in the basement of the White House, and then we come out here almost every hour. To seven feet by eight feet. You know, John, you got to play well with others to make that successful. You really do. I mean, you, you can't move your, your chair without bumping into somebody. And you're mm-hmm. in this intense environment for 10 to 12 hours a day. Uh, you don't see the sunshine except on a television monitor uh, that's hanging on the wall. And uh, there's no such thing as a private conversation. So everybody knows everybody yeah. else's business, but we have a really great group of people who are working together. Uh, they've sort of been handpicked. And yeah, I don't want to say you go through a CIA personality profile in order to, to get a job in that unit, but, but it's pretty close to yeah, it. it you cannot have people that do not get along well with yeah, each other. It doesn't hurt. How much contact do you have with the president? Um, on a daily or weekly basis, how would you characterize it? Well, yesterday I had contact with him three times. Uh, we were pool, so I was in the Oval Office twice, and then I asked him a question at the press conference. Um, you know, sometimes we'll go a few days without having contact with him, but typically when he travels, uh, we'll be out there on the rope line and we'll throw questions at him, so we'll have interaction with him then. I mean, I would say probably you know two to three times a week I have interaction with him, and when we're pool, then we have, and he's got events at least, uh, we'll have close interaction with him. You know, I'll be about eight feet away from him yeah. in the Oval Office. And yesterday, you know, he, 
he was there with Erdogan, and as I was on my way out of the Oval Office, he turns to Erdogan, he looks at me, and he turns to Erdogan, and he says, he says, that guy's a really great reporter. And then he looks at me, and he says, about 80% of the time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what, what is the strategy behind the helicopter press conferences? The helicopter, as we, re- yellowcopter, uh, as we yes. refer to it, the, uh, the helicopter. Um, I th- think he loves the spectacle. He loves the spectacle of us clambering over each other. And, Bill, if you ever saw it from his perspective, it's almost ridiculous. I mean, what you see on the camera is you see this picture of the president by himself walking up, and then you see sometimes some boom microphones. But if you were to flip the camera around, you would see about 100 people that looks like a rugby scrum clambering over each other to try to get a question to the president. But he loves the spectacle. He loves making us wait out there. Uh, you know, he loves to build the anticipation. Is he going to talk? Won't he talk? And the other day he fooled us. He, he made a sort of a, a motion toward the cameras and then walked straight to the helicopter. So we mm. had stood out there for 45 minutes for nothing. Yeah. Uh, it's and, all, John, and he, I see him as pacing in front of you all. Like, um, I don't know, is it a matador? Or, you know, he takes that finger and he points. <laughs> well, I was I just about to you. get to that. He, he uses the helicopter as a foil. Uh, because he can say, "I can't hear you." Say it again, and then sometimes he just waves his hand. If he doesn't like the big, the, if he doesn't like what he's hearing coming out of a reporter's mouth, he just waves them off and goes to the next person. And the whirling—it's not the whirling blades of the helicopter; it's the auxiliary power unit. Uh, but it's a turbine, and it's pretty darn loud. Allows him that sort of cover to be able to do that. But you're right; he does sort of pace back and forth like that and call on whoever he wants to call on. He loves sometimes to take questions from people that he doesn't like because he, he wants to yell back at them that they're fake news and how he's being treated unfairly. I mean, it's a really interesting process, but it, it for the most part, does play in the president's favor because he can easily ignore a follow-up question by just either walking down the line or pretending he can't hear it or just using the general noise to just kind of move on from one to the next mm-hmm. to the next. He, he, has, he has turned that into a very powerful forum for himself, and he has used it like no other president has. I remember during the Bush administration, for the most part, nine out of ten times, Bush would never talk on the way to the helicopter. And we would know that he would talk because they would turn off the APU so that he could be heard. And sometimes there was a little sort of mic podium uh, in front of us, and we knew that he had something to say. But he would only say something if it was substantive. He wouldn't hold many press conferences in, in front of the helicopter. So, so Trump has really changed that whole thing, but he does really work it to his advantage. Yeah. I know uh, Stephanie Grisham, the new White House press secretary, she has not held a press conference yet in the briefing room. And I, I know that kind of irks you. Um, I, my feeling was that when he won the presidency, that he was always going to be his own mouthpiece and press secretary. And it changed when the Mueller matter developed. And his people had to rein him in. Do you agree with that theory, at least as it was thought well, to play I, out at the beginning of this administration? I, I think what, what really happened is, you know, Trump has always thought that he's his best advocate. And, and in the early going, he was deferring to the system, as it were, that Sean Spicer was the person who had to come out and sort of give the White House talking points. And then the president would argue with Spicer about Spicer's performance and eventually Spicer left. And then he put, uh, uh, he put in uh, Sarah Huckabee after that. And, and then he saw Sarah getting beaten up every day. I mean, Sean was, a, you know, he's Irish. He's a real fighter. Uh, Sarah is, is more genteel. She's a Southerner. Now, she fought 
she fought well, but the president, I think, got tired of seeing her getting beaten up every day by a bunch of people that the president thought he could eat for lunch. So the president said, OK, look, no more briefings. I'm going to do this all myself. It was, this was after Bill Shine came in. And I think Shine encouraged him to do it as well. So the president started taking questions multiple times a day. I think that Stephanie Grisham, we see her on TV from time to time, but it's in a very controlled environment. It's not in the Brady uh, briefing room. It's not out here in the White House driveway having a gaggle. It's in a studio. Uh, and I think that she really serves the purpose more as a communications director than she does a press secretary. Uh, Hogan Gidley probably does a lot more press appearances uh, than she does, though I think she's beginning now to, to share that burden. But I don't think we're ever going to see her, well, at least not in the, in the near future, out there in a briefing setting or in a driveway gaggle setting, taking questions, being peppered with questions from multiple people. Yeah, interesting. I think she's looking for a much more controlled yeah. environment. So the president continues to be uh, his, his, his own best advocate. But maybe Mueller, you know, changed the calculation to some degree because of the nature of the questions that were being asked of Sarah Sanders. But I think the president just looked at it and said, I don't want to see her getting beaten up every day. I can handle this, so I'm going to handle uh, it myself. Interesting. couple more here, and I'll let you get back to work. Who does he, you know, with all the turnover there, who does he lean on? Who does he, who does he trust? Oh, for advice? Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, I think he listens a lot to the new White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. Uh, Cipollone does seem to have a large amount of power here at the White House. Um, I think he listens to Mick Mulvaney to a degree. Uh, he obviously listens to Jared. He listens to Ivanka. Uh, he listens to, to a large degree to Mike Pence as well. And then, of course, he relies on his longtime friends uh, from when he was a private citizen. Uh, but, you know, there's there's no one consigliore here mm -hmm. at the White House that, that he really listens to. I think it's a, a collection of a number of people. But I will say one thing. That I think for the most part, <clears throat> President Trump has got the team in place at the White House that he really wants. And across much of the administration as well. I was laughing this morning because I, I was just going down the roster of management leadership in the Department of Homeland Security. And everybody is, has got in brackets the word acting beside their title. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's not confirming people anymore. Because he's managed to find a way to get around that Senate confirmation process, which I think he thinks holds him back from doing whatever he wants to do. Now, he's trying to get Ken Cuccinelli into a position that does require confirmation. So that may be a fight that he, he has to have at some point. He's trying to get him in as a deputy DHS secretary. Mm -hmm. But he would have to be confirmed for that. So I'm not sure how he's going to do that. But it's just it's interesting to see how the president has reshaped this administration and 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 you know sh sloughed off all of the people who were trying to control him, and now he's got in place people who aren't necessarily yes people, but are people who give him you know very frank advice about what it is that he wants to do as opposed to what they want to do, and then he's got all of these acting people in positions at these departments who may not have been able to get conf confirmed. Uh, but he's very happy with having them where they are. And then he can change them out very easily as well because he doesn't have to go through a confirmation process. Very, so, very, Bill, yes. it's, it's, it's fascinating to see 
how he has changed the landscape here in Washington. I agree with you entirely on that and, and the importance of staying nimble. And I, I still believe he's evolving into how he still wants to manage things as as the president. Uh, John, what are they working on down there? there there's hammering in the background. And what, what are they doing? Oh, they're building me a new tent, Bill. Oh. <laughs> now, what, what's been going on here for the past few months and will continue through until probably the end of 2020 is they are replacing the six-foot-high fence that surrounds the entire, uh, I think it's a 12- or 13-acre White House complex. Uh, and the reason they're doing that is because they, they we're really getting an epidemic of fence jumpers. And the Secret Service were becoming like a football team, having to tackle these people as they were running across the White House lawn trying to get to the, the mansion. Wow. So they're replacing the six-foot-high fence with a 13-foot-high fence, which together with a small wall at the bottom will now be 15 feet high. So that's, that's a project that's taking place right in front of our area where we broadcast from. They're getting close to getting finished this first section, and then they'll move uh, further down toward 15th Street and uh, then down the other side of Treasury and then around the back side of the White House, which really mm. is the, the big part of the fence that goes from uh, 15th Street all the way down to 17th. So it was, it it's was a, a big project. It, it was been. a stunner when they sh- shut off the traffic in front of the White House. That was, I think, yeah, that and, grew out of Oklahoma City 1995, did it not? Uh, oh, and here's, and here's the story that Bill Clinton told me about that. Uh, he told me that they did an analysis after the Oklahoma City bombing, and they found that because it was a a massive structure built out of stone. If somebody were to park a truck bomb in front of the White House, uh, the mansion, the front, the North Portico might get knocked down with all the columns, but the mansion would survive. But the West Wing, which is where the Oval Office is, was only ever built as a temporary structure. So it doesn't have the structural integrity of the big part of, of the White House and would probably get flattened in any kind of blast like the Oklahoma City bombing, which is why the Secret Service decided to close off that part of Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, E Street, which is on the south side of the White House, got closed down after the mortar attack in London uh, back in the uh, 1990s uh, because the Secret Service was worried that somebody might pull a pickup truck or a van uh, with a mortar in it and start lobbing mortars at the White House. So the the one thing the Secret Service likes to do is keep expanding the perimeter. And they've got it expanded about to the maximum I think they can uh, and not really, really disrupt things here in Washington. Mm-hmm. But if there is some other attack somewhere that they think might leave the White House vulnerable, they'll expand that perimeter again. Yeah. John Roberts, chief White House correspondent, Fox News. You came to Fox in what year, John? That was... 2011, January 2011. Okay, so you're nine years burning down the road here. Fresh Time off goes your, by quickly. Yeah, your stint at CBS. You were a video disc jockey in Canada, I think, right? I was. I okay. started Canada's music a, channel. A VJ? Yeah. Uh, who, who's the best band of all time? The best band of all time? Mm-hmm. Well, Led Zeppelin, of course. Oh, really? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh-huh. All right. Okay. I mean, it's your vote. It's I, I don't have a vote here. Well, well, who's your best Let, band of all time? Well, you know, I'm kind of like a Dylan Springsteen guy. I, yeah. I always think that people are either musically inclined or lyrically inclined, and I'm, I've always been drawn to the words as opposed to the music. Well, you know, Led Zeppelin's words were pretty interesting. But I, but I, 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 I will tell you, if I could just revise and extend my remarks, as they yeah, say, okay. just down the street from you, me uh, so you, often. You I may. Think the, I think the Beatles were the best band ever because they really gave rise to, to everything else. But uh, I... Led Zeppelin was a personal favorite of mine because I'm a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, J- Jimmy Page was a sloppy as he was. He was a guitar god. And I think their songs were 
really transformational and nobody else was doing anything like what they were doing in the late 1960s and and I was a kid and I remember dropping the needle for the first time on Led Zeppelin 1 and going oh my god uh, what is this went straight to your head yeah it sure did <laughs> but you know I like I like those you know Dylan Springsteen uh, I like them too but uh, you know and the early U2 stuff you know, the newer U2 stuff, you know, in the last few years. You have to dig uh, a little deeper for the golden chestnuts on the new yeah, U2 stuff. Yeah, you do. Stuff. I mean, how, how, to, how to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, I think, was their, mm. was their last really good album. Uh, but their really early stuff, because I, I saw U2 in Toronto in 1980. They were playing to 400 people. Oh. I saw the police play to 15 or 16 uh, how people. How big was Bono's hair? Uh, we both had mullets Yeah, at the time. I was going to say, was it bigger <laughs> or, than yours or not? Uh, it was a little higher than mine, and I reminded him of that. In about 2010, I interviewed him when I was doing the morning show, uh, like you, over at CNN. Uh-huh. Uh, and he came in, and I showed him pictures, a uh, picture of he and I together with our mullets. <laughs> he laughed. That is a moment. John Roberts, a story for everything. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of your stories today. And uh, John, I hope you come back, and we'll speak down the road. And terrific work down there at the White House each and every day. Thank you, Bill. I got I got a lot more stories than that, so <laughs> I bet. I'm happy to come back. We'll go to the bar for the rest of them. Thank you, John. You Have it. a great All day. Right. You too. John Roberts from Fox News. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmertown. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.